This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Haluko from Japan discover in France the national obsession round the Tour de France by biking some of its routes. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town, heard by talking singing songs I have laid my loneliness down so long descend with peaceful friends there is no richer wine we set off cycling through woods in the valley of the Durance River travelling to the highest town in Europe Briançon sitting at 1,210 metres. Our inquiries about where is a camping ground draw a blank from many. Seems to suggest they are unaware such a camp exists in their community. The least likely business to know would seem to be a fashionable women's boutique. But one of the staff puts us on the right track. True, she does look to be the camping type. En route des Grand Alps, tomorrow will be our last day. We'll be taking on the 2,507-metre Col de l'Autoré. It's reached on a route to Grenoble, gradually rising over 30 kilometres without any steep sections. We come by hugely exaggerated-sized bicycles near the road. Harlico can't resist climbing on one or two of them. We escape to the world of Kitty's dreams, climbing all over them for a few minutes. Alpine cols often inspire their own folklore. Strange events happen up here, locals say. It's a stormy night. A motorist on this road sees a woman in white covering her face as a white shawl. As he comes near, he pulls over. Assuming she's been caught out in atrocious weather, he offers the hitchhiker a lift. She accepts the ride, but says nothing. Just short of his own destination, and the motorist looks in the mirror, astonished. She's disappeared. She's disappeared. Others convey similar encounters with the woman in white shawl. She appears at night along the way. Some fear to stop to give her a ride, then suffer misadventure. No one ever hears her speak or sees her face. It's something to think about. Travelling by bike, we see posh chalets and cafes full of tourists. Serious mountaineers set off to climb around huge tongues of glaciers to reach the heights. Jagged rocks of La Meje soaring to almost 4,000 metres. One of five peaks along the range, La Meje is known as the Droite de Jeu, Finger of God, first climbed 150 years ago. To promote tourism in remote and scenic parts of France, a little-known sports paper desperate to raise circulation, launched the first Tour de France in 1903. 
Editor Henri Desgrange, himself a dedicated cyclist, achieves extraordinary success. Worldwide audiences follow the event. Television documentaries show contestants in their triumph or sheer exhaustion. In the international event, the scenic backdrops are bonus. It's with no fanfare at all that another enterprise brings phenomenal success for the nearby Dauphine Alps, these days commonly called the Chartreuse Alps, in the form of a liqueur, the unlikely merchants of the strong, sweet alcoholic drink are the Carthusian monastic monks of the Cave de la Chartreuse in Veyron. Led by Saint-Bruno in his fifties, six of his companions plant their religious community in a high wooded valley nearly a thousand years ago. They build their abode, a chapel and distillery, their means of support through trade. It's their wheel cycle. Some months before, two bottles in an attractive presentation pack mysteriously appeared back home in Christchurch. One's Chartreuse Green, the other yellow. A note states, These will make your bicycles go faster. It's a good prophecy, and we aim to fulfill it. For the moment, our spokes shimmer between fast-wearing wheels. Anxious to get there, for once I lead rather than trail Harlico through road tunnels clinging to the edge of the gorge, picturesque towns and villages. While in the Alps this produces pleasantly warm days in spite of the high altitude, as we descend into valleys, the heat is beginning to hit. We're parched. In Grenoble, having a record hot summer, we down iced tea before tackling the last 19 kilometres to Voiron arriving nearly at the close of business for the day. Our host is expecting us, calls us from an open window. Hers is a smile as pleasant as any we should ever expect to greet. We feel most welcome. She invites us to follow her car on our bikes to where she booked us to a comfortable hotel. In its outdoor courtyard, we dine before turning in. More hospitality comes with the new day. Smartly dressed Emmeline's our guide, who expertly escorts us through the museum. We venture to go down into the world's largest liqueur-aging cellars and into the distillery itself. It amazes us that this exists to inform all visitors free of charge. They project two short documentary films to see its 3D effect. One requires we wear those strange colour filters as glasses. Theirs is surely a success story. The film associates Carthusian monks with the Knights Templar and Crusaders in earliest times. They felled some of their forest to make masts of best timber for sailing ships. On cleared land, they grew crops, raised livestock. They're an industrious lot, quarrying limestone and recognized as early as the 12th century for initiating modern metallurgy. By employing local citizens, they stimulated their local economy so citizens prosper. As the monastery expands, it stirs jealousy among influential noblemen whose steel and other production lacks the same luster. Industrialists opposing the monks get the authorities to restrict the quantity of wood allowed to be charred for firing the iron foundry. To comply, the monks replace their charcoal as fuel with coke for firing the Carthusians' eleven blast furnaces. But interference put their industry in decline, eventually to collapse in the French Revolution. 
their last furnace grows cold in 1792. However, many of their intricately fashioned items of wrought ironwork and weapons survives, identified by their embossed Carthusian globes and crosses. Scientifically curious, these innovative Carthusians keep experimenting with a range of concoctions, coming up with a health-giving distilled green liquid, medicinal in effect. At 71% alcohol, it acts as a reasonable anaesthetic, and, despite unthinkable a colour green, pleasant to drink. The monks made a milder version for themselves, 55% alcohol. It's all in the writing. They came by an unusual manuscript passed on to Henry IV's artillery chief. Even then, in 1605, it's treated as an ancient document. Only a few most learned monks master its meaning. The secrets of Elixir Vegetal de la Grande Chatres, a liquid for health and long life. Emmeline leads us through an eerily lit underworld of huge wooden barrels. She pauses to show displays of old chatres, posters, and other memorabilia. Set into one wall is a full-sized mock-up of a monastery monk's cell. A hooded monk, his back to us, seems to be experimenting with potions and herbs. It's a scenario more akin to a pharmacist's than a religious order. Documents are piled haphazardly on a chair. On a lectern lies a book open. A neat handwritten script is among a stack on the table. I'll snap a digital image of its crisp black writing while Emmeline and Harlico move on. It jumps up in large lettering in my viewfinder. Ready? Nothing. No matter how I set it for exposure... My camera won't capture a legible image. So the Chartreuse secrets, not for the last time, are safe in the hands of modern monks, even in turbulent times. Only one monk being allowed to live in their monastery during the French Revolution with its ban on religious orders. He copied the script by hand, entrusting the original to one monk subsequently arrested and imprisoned near Bordeaux. Luckily, not being thoroughly searched, a monk smuggles it out. When, in 1810, Emperor Napoleon orders citizens surrender all such secret documents, it's refused as being irrelevant. The Carthusians retain the ancient script, find within their ranks one whose intelligence can interpret it, so green liqueur again flows according to the right recipe. Many years later... The French government nationalizes the distillery. The monks flee. Chartres is put under control of a private distiller, but he goes broke. By 1929, sympathetic businessmen take control of the asset, donate the distillery to the monks, and the Carthusians are back in business, funding their religious enterprise. Heads reeling from all this history. We adjourn to the tasting room, also part of the Chartres tour. Its bar is like no other, a room of intricate stained-glass windows, each indicating an episode in the Carthusian heritage. It's an ecclesiastical rather than a drinking atmosphere. I'm trying to measure the potential effect of the generous lineup of Chartreuse sampling bottles and our pending cycle ride through the Chartreuse mountains. I asked to try the curious yellow liqueur, which goes down the treat tasting a little sweeter than others. First formulated in 1840, 
It takes the alcohol content as low as 40%. Emmeline's a mine of information. I ask if the story of the secret recipe is true. If it's the case at any one time, no more than three monks safeguard the secret recipe of more than 100 herbal ingredients, distilled honey and sugar syrup, matured in large oak casks for several years. It's true, they do, she says. Nothing added is artificial, not even the green and yellow colours. It's all in the original recipe. All monks have an opportunity to work in the distillery. If they do, they must sacrifice their monastery life for the duration. Not much to go on for any who think to get started with home-brew chartreuse, especially not considering that such imitations produce the worst-ever hangovers. The distillery displays bottles collected as containing imitations. None preserve anything like the original natural flavour and appearance. Our peddling sets a pace that may corroborate rumours of Chartreuse being an elixir of long life, for we continue at a good clip till we arrive at a restaurant our hosts choose, comfortably cool, offering an overwhelming variety of dishes. It's hospitality of extraordinary extent, shown to two cycle tourists, and might reflect New Zealanders consuming more exported Chartreuse per capita than does any other nationality. More than 2,000 cases a year. It's not like trade with a corporation, as the monks' underlying conviction is that there's divine purpose to their mission. Now we're keen to see their monastery in the fastnesses of the mountains. Alone now, we press on. We take a secondary route past the sad-looking wreckage of the former Carthusian monks' distillery, devastated by a landslide, crossing a river to enter a gorge. Our road climbs under several rock overhangs, passes towering rock pinnacles, to reach the mercifully cool forest. Once the river's roar recedes, emerges the sound of creaking bike chains, not to mention my knees. We take a detour up a steep access to a 12th century home of the monks, now a museum open to the public, ice and snow permitting, over the summer from April till November. Strange events happen up here. Valerie, the museum shop manager, greets us. The shop's well endowed with memorabilia, and the boiled sweets are a delight to suck, especially when the outer casing bursts and the palate is suddenly awash with the taste of Chartreuse liqueur. Photographs and a film show the typical life of Carthusian monks who live in small cells in solitude, devoting much of their time to prayer, the film, being shot in winter, not the stifling summer's day we experience, makes it an oddity when the monk's prayer is seen to be interrupted by their quest for more wood on the stove in the middle of the cell. Valerie concedes the temperature varies widely in the Chateau's mountains, with roads impassable in winter. A narrow road climbing gently through an avenue of trees to the monastery has been closed to all but foot traffic. We are granted permission to ride our bicycles. This is the final two kilometres of a journey conceived three years before sitting in a New Zealand pub. We cross into the mountains, zone of silence. Here the bicycles go in an old barn near monastery walls, walking now. We step into the semi-underground Chapelle de la Resurrection. It's the monastery's only part open to visitors. Sparsely furnished, small and dark, it's one striking appeal 
is a life-sized, backlit reproduction of the Sindon of Christ, based on a belief that linen burial cloth survives, still bearing Jesus Christ's physical imprint on the shroud. As our eyes adjust to the bright daylight outside, we climb a short way above a crucifix so as to see over the monastery wall. Whereas to some on viewing the homes within the walls that might seem a prison, they who live here say the environment is one of peace and solitude. Late afternoon light enhances the architecture, tall, steep, barn-like roofs. Beyond the monastery itself it has a backdrop of forested hills overlooked by vertical rock faces. This is no prison. It's a place of prayer where monks feel free to follow their conscience. It's expected they spend several hours a week walking to appreciate their spectacular surroundings. Their seclusion in one of the stricter orders of the church is the choice each monk makes. They see it not as retreat from society, but as a gift of charity, a gift of themselves. Saint Bruno, who starts it all, is called out of seclusion by his former student, since become Pope Urban II. In the south of Italy, Saint Bruno sets up a monastery at Calabria, a mountainous yet fertile region rich in cereals, wine, olives, fruit, copper and marble. Saint Bruno, who wished to retire to his monastery at Chartreuse, but never did, is made a saint without ever having been formally canonized by the church. It's to a hotel in Chartres we're booked, so we're back on our bicycles to ride from the monastery through a very steep hairpin bend to our accommodation. Slightly shabby, old but appealing, our room's on the third floor. Halako says the milieu reminds her of the traditional Japanese Ryokom hotel. Our mission to investigate the Chartres tradition achieved. We fold away the map. It's reassuring to know a tradition so old as the monks at Chatres lives on. At last count, there are 21 Carthusian monasteries across Europe, known as charter houses. Meantime, we'll be looking to cycle out of France, taking two days to reach the border on the shores of the largest lake of Central Europe, Geneva. Here we come. Coming from a small, isolated island country at the bottom of the world, where few French venture, I harbour a prejudice, blaming them as perpetrators of an attack on the Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior whilst peacefully at her moorings in Auckland. Their saboteurs in 1985 attached a limpet mine to the bottom of the hull. The French attempted to justify this as a preemptive mission to prevent Rainbow Warrior from joining a peace flotilla converging on Mururoa Atoll, a Pacific Atoll despoiled by an estimated 180 atomic and nuclear tests exploded over 30 years from 1966. Bombs dropped by bombers or suspended from balloons, others on floating platforms in the lagoon. They could release fallout, polluting anything coming into contact with them in the tropical paradise of Tuamoto Archipelago. Amor Mercurai, voyage de mer dans sa rocaille, des brèches gigantesques baillent. Amor sans bataille, no mushroom cloud to fill the sky, but living reefs so cruelly die, and 
deadly waste is left to lie, though it cannot be justified. La liberté, il n'y en a pas, égalité, mais quelle histoire, fraternité entre bâtards, il n'y a que la tyrannie. And violent men with war machine, they keep it sharp, they keep it clean. We haven't changed the old regime, the people get the guillotine. It endangers human health and living things, affects DNA, quite capable of enduring in the environment for a thousand years. So vociferous grows the outcry, France moves its tests underground, bores deep shafts to explode the atomic devices in bedrock beneath its coral atoll. It does nothing to diminish an international outcry. New Zealand tasks its navy to join the protest fleet patrolling outside in international waters. They monitor vessels that go into the French territorial waters. French authorities board some of the protest boats, arrest the crews. France is risking condemnation if a test exposes humans to radiation at close quarters. The presence of two foreign frigates, HMNZS Otago and HMNZS Canterbury, in the high seas near Mururoa is incisive argument against nuclear tests for contaminating the Pacific Ocean and its people. Ironically, the first record of European contact with Mururoa is when the British Navy anchors in 1767. Another European ship's crew, arriving 80 years later, kills all but three of the inhabitants of Mururoa, it's believed. But the bizarre French sabotage of that visiting vessel, Rainbow Warrior, in the friendly port of a nation that regards France as an ally, offends Kiwi's thinking. Worse, when France's sudden attack traps a Portuguese photographer in wreckage below deck after the limpet mine blows a hole in the protest vessel's hull. The photographer drowns as the vessel submerges. His bereft young daughter personifies the fears that France's hostile actions in 1985 will bring disaster to Pacific nations that endured already European world wars. France later abandons its nuclear testing in French Polynesia, leaving the contaminated island of Mururoa to its fate. Closer the British possession of Pitcairn Island than to France's own colony of Tahiti, more than a thousand miles distant from the former atomic testing site. La fleur de mer sur sa muraille, les poissons blêmes aveugles faillent. They counted down, the warheads fired It's one step back for humankind The broken bodies shattered lime A sinking half an inch each time La liberté, il n'y en a pas Égalité, mais quelle histoire Fraternité entre bâtards Il n'y a que la tyrannie And violent men with war 
machine. They keep it sharp. They keep it clean. We haven't changed the old regime. The people gets the guillotine. We'll march, we'll sail, we'll have our way From Hiroshima to Marseille The Knightsmen nukes have had their day We'll cast away the guillotine Aviv Mudoro will live. Written and sung by Lynn Lorcan about 1980 on Rouge Records of Auckland, Aotearoa, all money it raised to go to in particular to the Mudoroa Pacific Peace Flotilla and Nong Alabom. To truly appreciate France, it won't do to naively judge a country and its people by the actions of a few who think it's okay to violently attack in a democratic nation a peaceful protest vessel and crew exercising their right to protest. At that time, French civilians are as much in ignorance of their government's hostile intentions against Rainbow Warrior as were New Zealanders. Now we experience France firsthand. I'm realising Kiwis too quickly condemn the whole population of France. Our cycling from the Mediterranean coast north towards the Pennine Alps comes close to the Italian border, where overlaps occur of the languages French and Italian. Farther north in France lies another overlap, French and the regional tongue of Alsatian, spoken in Alsace-Lorraine, here sung by Sylvie Reff, recorded by EMI production, of Schiltigheim in Alsace in 1980. Despite scoring a mere few percent in my marks for school certificate French, I'm grateful for the French friendliness and passionate enjoyment of cycling for recreation, for travelling, and as their national sport. This program is adapted from the book Pedal Power by Roy Sinclair for the program Historic Souvenirs, presented on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Das Hohmarisch 
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.